I'm Carrie Miller, and this week's Blast from the Past author interview is a 2021 conversation with Suzanne Samard. She's a scientist and forest ecologist who was instrumental in her field to understanding how trees communicate. Her book, The Mother Tree, describes how she grew up in the great forests near British Columbia, how she resisted the conventional wisdom about logging, and how she came to detect the subtle clues of the interconnectedness of trees. It's a rich discussion. I hope you'll listen in. Here's Suzanne Samard. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. Glad you're tuned in today because we're talking about how trees nurture, communicate, and protect one another. Our guest is a forest detective who knows how to unlock the secrets of trees, who possesses a deep commitment to the renewing power of the forest, and who has had her share of close encounters with the creatures who live in them. Suzanne Samard writes in the introduction to her new book, This is not a book about how we can save the trees. This is a book about how the trees might save us. As she joins us, I'd love to hear from you this morning if there is a particular tract of forest or a place in the Midwestern woods in which you found a lot of solace and joy and maybe a sense of reinvigoration. Tell me about your connection to that place and what you've observed about the changes in that place over the years. So if there are woods, there's a forest somewhere that you go in the Midwest that is really important to you, and you've observed the changes of this place, and you've found this sense of reinvigoration, and you've explored it often, maybe with your family. I think we'd like to hear about that, and I'd like to hear how it's changed over the years, what what kind of observations you've made about it. 651-227-6800-242-2828, and you can tweet me, maybe with a photo, if you happen to have it, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I, NPR. Suzanne Smart is a forest ecologist at the University of British Columbia and the author of Finding the Mother Tree, and she's with us from Nelson, British Columbia. Suzanne, welcome. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I thought we could start in Blue River, where you're a young ecologist. You've been hired by the Forest Service to work on these these free-to-grow experiments. And it seems like, I mean, this is early, early in your in your science career. And it seems like this is where you start to sense how trees and plants might be working together. So take us back there. Tell us a little bit about the work you were doing and why it's, it's kind of a foundation for where you'd go. Yeah, well, <laughs> this work in Blue River was really an opportunity for me. So Blue River, just for people who don't know where it is, it's it's kind of smack in the middle of British Columbia. It's um, it's probably oh about eight hundred kilometers to the north of Vancouver, um, if, and Vancouver is right on the coast. Um, so it's surrounded by big mountains, big forests, and um, I I was just a youngster. You know, I was in my early twenties. <laughs> And um, I had been working in the forest industry, you know, after growing up as a a kid of the forest. My my family were horse loggers, and I became a forester. And that was when, you know, clear-cut logging was just becoming the thing of the day. And um, for me, as a young forester, learning my way, that it was was just 
such a big shock compared to what my grandpa did, um, who just took out, you know, he selectively logged and left the forest pretty intact and regenerative. Um, but these clear-cut forests were a whole different beast. And um, anyway, my I got this little job in, in Blue River, and I was my job was to try to figure out, you know, how to get rid of the native plants in these clear cuts that had been made. And the native plants were beautiful, you know, uh, rhododendrons, azaleas, uh, fireweed, huckleberries, you know, beautiful. And, um, but the, but the government had just enacted this new act um, that trees that were growing up in these big plantations and these big clear cuts needed to be free of these plants so that they were not competing with, with them. They thought these native plants were competitors. And so, our job was to figure out how to, and and I just, you know, from the beginning was just like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. Um, but it was to spray these plants with herbicides yeah. and try to figure out how to kill them. And um, and so my sister and I, I think I was like 23 and she was 25. And we laid out this experiment, which for me was like the big learning experience, how, experience was how to conduct an experiment. Um, and then, you know, we had to, we sprayed these herbicides at my poor sister was just like, Susie, why are we doing this again? <laughs> I mean, you you had this sense then, then, I mean, these were the orders that were coming down from the government, as you've said, but you had this sense that even for the health of the forest, even with this idea that they were competing against the health of the trees, that there was something really wrong about this, Yes. Yeah, well, like I said, I grew up in the forest. And so, you know, in the forest, trees are all over each other, right? Like there's right. there's different species growing next to each other. They're, um, you know, they're, they have different positions in the, in the crown or the overstory. They've got roots that go in different places. They actually kind of try to avoid each other as much as possible as possible to get resources, but they also collaborate. And um, and so when you're there, you can see them going through this, you know, basically a, you know, this constant uh, relationships that are changing, just like ours do in our own societies. Um, and, and it makes the forest diverse and whole. And so what the forest industry was focusing on was just one aspect of those complex relationships, and that was how they compete with each other. They thought that if there are these native plants and if they're overtopping the precious trees they were trying to grow in the plantations, we've got to get rid of them. Yeah. And keep in mind, you know, forests, when they get disturbed, whether it's by a fire or a clear cut, they go through what we call succession. And a lot of plants come in and they're basically there to heal the land and help it to recover and then become a forest in the future. And the thinking of the day was, well, we can just skip that step for the forest. <laughs> we'll, we'll just get rid of early succession and we'll move on to the, the, the trees themselves. We can kind of yeah, force so, our, yeah, force our theories on and subvert the way the forest is naturally going to recover. Exactly. Suzanne, I want to grab a call because I think this speaks to to what you're describing to John in St. Paul. Hi John, I'm glad you called. Where do you where do you go? What's what's your favorite forest? Well, the Superior National Forest off the Gunflint Trail. Beautiful. And I just came back from there. And we've been watching for 40 years and uh for your author's sake, it's gone through major transformations. There's a blowdown, there's been fires. There have been insect infestations. So it's been fascinating watching 
the redevelopment and the regrowth over time from, say, a pure boreal forest or close to pure to now one that is um, aspen and popple and mixed forest. Um, and it's original. We think of it as primeval, but it was actually logged over about a century and a really? half ago. Really? Well, so, John, let me put this, what you've said about it started out more boreal, and I'm going to ask Suzanne to describe what that means, and now now your observation that it's more mixed. Suzanne, what's happening in that forest? And by the way, it's very close to Canada, I think we ought to say. Yeah, yeah. So those forests, um, yeah, the boreal forests are usually like spruce and fir-dominated, and and they go through these disturbance and succession patterns as well. So they have what we call a natural disturbance regime, all, all forests do. And he described, you know, there have been blowdown, there had been some, some fire, I think he said. Um, and that's normal, right? And and when that happens, the the plant community changes. So you get more mixed forests, you get more aspen, you get more poplar and those are those are early successional species that grow quickly in gaps that are created by these disturbances. They can be large gaps. They can be quite large, you know, very big. Um, and they those deciduous trees um, grow quickly. They fix carbon, uh, so they photosynthesize very rapidly. Um, and that that photosynthate ends up in the ground a lot of it, and it drives the nutrient cycles, which then makes the forest increasingly uh, rich and more productive. And then, you know, slowly over time, the conifers that represent the later successional stages, or we call them the climax forests, where um, they're mature, and that's the, that's the, the species that are, you know, the most adapted over the long term, will take over. And so, yeah, forests that are undergoing, like, regular disturbance, which is normal, um, will undergo these changes in tree species uh, associated with, you know, the disturbance type and then the age along that successional trajectory. Quick quick question about what John said. So he said it was logged about a century ago. Is that mm-hmm. now a forest that you would say is in full recovery at this point? Yeah, I would say. I mean, I probably if it was logged a century ago, it probably was hand fallen. <laughs> I'm quite sure okay. it was like, probably with crosscut saws. Um, and you know, a lot of the logging back then, especially well, in my neck of the woods anyway, and I suspect them too, is it was quite selective logging. And so that means that they would take out the trees that they needed that were the most valuable to the loggers, and then basically leave the rest of the forest. So no clear cutting, and, like you were seeing in right. in the yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, these were not big machines. Yeah. A call here from Sabina in listening in Taiwan today. Hi, Sabina. I'm glad you're tuned in. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad that I did too. What are you um, thinking about? Really, really amazing uh, book that you've written. There is a lot of overlap with a wonderful place uh, in south southeast Minnesota that um, is real. Uh, touches, you know, it's important to me, um, Badge Set Research Farm, um, which is a, is right next to a natural forest that is similarly, uh, you know, has recovered from, from having had the kind of logging that she was just talking about mm-hmm. um, and is also a woody agriculture research farm. Uh, so uh, very biodiverse um, uh, uh, area that, that um, were woody agriculture plants, uh, hazelnuts and 
chestnuts, uh, hickories have been developed for about 40 years for um, uh, the hope for future uh, commercial production. Hmm. Uh, But, but with, but with the, uh, the natural biota uh, kind of situation, not, uh, not the way that that kind of thing is done these days. And it's a, not an orchard system. Um, so, I'm so glad anyway, you mentioned that, it. Yeah, I've never heard of it. Badger yeah. set research yeah. farms, huh? Yeah, yeah. And there's just a lot of overlap between the kinds of things that the that the author is talking about, and um, and that place that's here in Minnesota. And you'd you'd ask people to talk about places that were important uh, to yeah, them, or that were important to them, and and uh, the farm itself um, with the the Woody Agriculture Research Plants is is at this point a, a forest of its own, right wow. next to the more uh, natural forest um, uh, that has regrown uh, and has a lot of the native plants in it. I'm really glad for the call. Sabina, thank you. Bell says on Twitter, my favorite forest is at St. Croix State Park. It's an oasis that heals my soul every single time I'm there. It's a family tradition for our family to go at least once every year. Yeah, I'm asking you if you have a, I don't know, a particular connection. I think this is an experience that a lot of us can relate to here in the upper Midwest in Minnesota and Wisconsin and Iowa, that there are places that we go, forests or or big woods that we've spent some time in, and we have found reinvigoration and, you know, and some kind of solace and joy just in being there. And we've observed some of the changes that have come to those woods and forests. I mean, whether it is a big fire, and that happens, of course, whether it is some kind of infestation of of insects, whether it's a blowdown, whether it is just preserved and all its glory, it's never really been been reached or affected by that. What's this place mean to you? What have you seen in the way that it's changed over the years? 800-242-2828, wherever you're listening, 651-227-6000. And if you if you happen to have a photo of it, go ahead and tweet it to me. It's at Carrie K E R R I M P R. Suzanne Samard is with us. She's a forest ecologist at the University of British Columbia. She, she Columbia. She is one of the early scientists who realized that plants communicate, collaborate, nurture one another. And we're talking at the beginning of this conversation about how she came to the observation and the understanding of that. Her new book is called Finding the Mother Tree. Suzanne, you begin to experiment with soil to discover why these birch and fir seedlings and the cedar seedlings are dying in this plantation area. Would you tell us a bit about how you realize that it is the right kind of fungus in the soil that turns out to be so important? Yeah, well, I was, by the time I was in my early 30s, I had a job with the Ministry of Forests, which would be like your state forests in in Canada. And my job as a researcher was to figure out, you know, how how these plantations were growing, you know, these ones that were weeded. Um, And were they doing well? Were they they not doing well? And I found that when, when they weeded out the birches, 
um, made these plantations of Douglas fir clean like they were hoping, um, that, that diseases started popping up. There would be, you know, these infections, when a tree would get infected and it would spread from tree to tree to tree. And, you know, soon, you know, we were finding 10%, 20% of these forests were dead within, you know, a few years by the time they were 10 years old. And so I I was going into these kind of cleansed plantations wondering, wondering you know, what's, What's going on? And I realized, I knew, because I'd worked with the pathologists, we knew there was this fungus below ground. It was called armillaria root disease, which is a native fungus. It's endemic. Um, But the practices we were doing, it turns out, was throwing the whole root system and all the fungal community out of balance. So it turns out, I'd learned about this other kind of fungus, so not pathogens, not saprotrophs, but mycorrhizal fungi. These are the beneficial fungi where the fungi collaborate with the tree by bringing water and nutrients from the soil and trading it for their photosynthate. And it turns out that these mycorrhizal fungi actually connect the birch and fir together, um, and they form these networks. Yeah. And I found out that, you know, this beneficial fungus actually really was crucial to keeping that that other fungus, the armillaria, um, in check. That once we took the birches out and disrupted their mycorrhizal network, that made it, you know, a kind of like big gaps and big free-for-all for the pathogen to get just get in there and infect the fir trees, which were supposed to be so valuable um you know, in the future for the market, their marketability. And, and is it true that this network turns out to be really important to the way the trees and and uh, different species, different types of trees, the way they are going to communicate, maybe uh, send nutrition out to one another, collaborate? Is that where, the, you know, this essentially happens? Yeah, it is. So, you know, in a in a single patch of forest, um, depending on how how diverse the forest is, so the more tree species diversity there is, the more fungal diversity there is below ground. But you can have in a single acre of forest, 100, 200 species of these mycorrhizal fungi associated with the trees, the different tree species. And a lot of these trees share a lot of these fungi in common. So they, these these generally call them generalist fungi, link all these trees together. And then the trees themselves have different statuses in the forest. So you can think of some are really uh, high in photosynthate or rich in nitrogen. Others, maybe they're uh, suffering a little bit. Maybe they're uh, just young, growing up in the understory, and they have low photosynthate and low nitrogen in them. And so that sets up what we call a source-sync gradient between the two connected trees. Mm. And basically the carbon and the nitrogen, and now we know water, also moves from these big, rich trees to these poorer trees, following kind of like a concentration gradient. It's a little more complicated than that, mm. but it's really just moving from a high source to a, to a sink tree. Oh. Um, and so you can think of your forest, if you want to think of it that way, as this pattern of sources and sinks. And this is what governs how nutrients, water, and, uh, and, and carbohydrates move from tree to tree. So they're basically sharing or redistributing resources. And I call it communication because um, they can perceive each other's status, right? They wow. Can, perceive who's rich, who is poor, and they'll redistribute accordingly. And I have to also say, you know, that doesn't mean that they're not also competing with each other. They are doing that at the same time. It's just that they're rebalancing 
the distribution of resources. It's like having, you know, a little bit of, it's a subsidy system um, so that it keeps the whole forest alive and diverse and very healthy. You know, I I have to say, Suzanne, that uh, I, I interviewed Richard Powers about his novel Overstory a few years ago. He, okay, yeah. you know, a lot of it is based on the science that you've developed and some of the people that have followed you. And walking through the forest, it, it transformed my perception and experience of the forest. And mm. you must have had, you know, as you were beginning to understand this, you must have had a similar experience. Yeah? Yeah, I did. You know, I always was like a kid of the forest. So it was, you know, it's in my blood and bones. Um but yeah, as I learned, as I did these scientific, you know, experiment after experiment and just making these discoveries. And I, I remember, you know, reading this when I was early in my PhD and I read this one paper paper um, by Marianne Clarisholm. And she was one of the first uh, soil biologists who really described what we call now a, a soil food web. And just imagining the creatures below ground, you know, there's whole trophic levels and they feed on one another, and and the soil is packed with them. And, of course, these mycorrhizal networks are packing the soil as well. So the soil is this, like, it's like this living, thrumming, Teeming, grounding yeah. motion. <laughs> There's this huge internet below ground of, of information moving back and forth between all the creatures. Oh. To the phones to Louise in Duluth. Hi, Louise. I really appreciate you waiting. What are you thinking about? Hi. Well, I'm thinking about a lot of things. Um, when Dr. Samard and I were in graduate school together ah, at really? State University <laughs> College of Forestry, uh-huh. she was working on her PhD and I was working on my master's thesis oh. in, in silviculture. Um, I am. Uh, I will confess that I did not have the maturity to understand the coolness of and amazingness of her research. Um, and now that I'm much older and slightly wiser, I think about what she's doing almost every day in my work as an arborist. Wow, that that's wonderful to hear. Go ahead. I'm I'm most struck, I think, by um, you know thinking about my my inability to understand um, the profundity of what Suzanne was was researching and trying to figure out with Dr. Perry. Um, and how other colleagues have um, downplayed or poo-pooed what uh, Su- Suzanne was finding out. And I'm wondering, um, Suzanne, if you're finding more receptivity amongst your colleagues in the research community and perhaps the practitioner community, or if it's still groundbreaking and a little hard for people to, to assimilate into their forestry and arboriculture practices. Yeah, Suzanne, if I might, I will just say that the government, the logging industry, the ranching industry was not very receptive to to your early work. Um, can you say something about this? Yeah, and it's so great to hear from you, Louise. <laughs> um, I, I saw Louise not that, you know, I guess it was a few years ago at, at the Nobel Conference. I, I think you were there, weren't you, Louise? Anyway, it was really great to see you, um, and that's a, such a great a great question. Um, I would say that the response it's evolving. So absolutely right that when this work first came out, 
Um, the, the biggest response was, was, well, we'll just ignore it. Um, we don't need to know about this stuff. It's cute, but, you know, we don't, it's not important. Um, and then as it became, as I did more work and I became more vocal about it um, and trying to get them to pay attention, then the back, backlash in the forest industry started up. And it was like, you don't know what you're talking about and we're not going to do this and, uh, or we're not going to leave these plants. Um, but ultimately, they did start to change. Um, uh, on the academic side, there was, I would say, a pretty big backlash as well. It was different. It was more about, oh, competition is still the most important interaction in the development of communities. And, um, and of course, that came from Dar- Darwinism, which really was about evolution and natural selection, but it was really transferred, you know, almost blindly into ecology and dominated how we viewed how whole plant communities interacted, not just how individual species evolve. And that and that drove the development of these policies and practices, which, you know, are so harsh, right? They're getting rid of, like, basically the, the natural... Uh, value the natural diversity in the forest just because we think we can get that one thing that gold right dollars in our eyes um and now you know there's more awareness of this i've you know i've continued to work many other labs around the world are have verified it in their forest or at least looked at different aspects of it and so it's becoming more known it's even in biology high school biology textbooks people teach it in universities but when you come to look at forest practices like where i am in british columbia the is it's it's really just clear cut and plant and um and i you know i've been pushing them to say you know leaving some old trees and this comes down to you know the mother tree idea where the central uh, uh, nucleus of the forest that's the most highly connected, the foci of the forest, are the big old trees. They're the ones that are nurturing the young seedlings along. And I've been saying, you know, try to don't just clear cut them all because these are the legacies. These are our ticket to the future because they have the genes in them, the seeds that will get us through the next climate changes because they've seen it before or at least, you know, some aspects of it. Um, but, you know, what we still do is clear-cut and plant. There's no imagination to it. Jeez. And it's left us with a province of clear-cuts. And mm-hmm. we're fighting for our last 3% of iconic old-growth forests. So it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. But, you know, I think that as the public gets to understand this more and say, hey, you know, this is really this economic way of or the shareholder way of managing forests isn't working for us. It's not working for the people. It's not working for the planet. Who is this working for? And maybe there will be a shift. Right. John uh, tweeted in, we've been going to the North Shore for 60 years plus, simplified. The birch trees are dying out and maples are flourishing. Logging, bugs, fire and wind have taken their toll, but it's climate change that's changing the nature of the forest. Uh, Let me come back to climate change because you've written at length about that, but I want to get to Jane in Lanesboro. Hi, Jane. Good to have you on the line. Hi. Um, I am really excited to uh, talk with you guys about this. Um, I have a a, a little farm outside of Lanesboro. Uh, It's a very hilly uh, area and bluff country. Um, this farm had been, when we bought it 30 years ago, it had been, um, pastured by, with sheep. And so there were pockets of 
small pockets of woods, um, but a lot of erosion. And so we have let it do what it wants ever since. And what's happened has been so interesting. There's an area of uh, very small, like five birch trees, and um, the red oak have sprouted in that area. And um, they are so close. Some of them are an inch, you know, a red oak, an inch apart from Ah, a birch tree. And they are thriving. One does not seem to dominate the other. And it continues. They continue to sprout new trees up right by each other. Not always that close, but close. And now I notice over another area that has the uh, poplar and aspen, the same thing is going on over there. Wow. And it's all regenerating by itself. And but the but the trees are in some cases growing very close together. Suzanne, why? Yeah. Why would that be? Yeah, so when you have degraded areas or, you know, that's been in pasture for a long time, and I've worked with this in all kinds of environments, you know, including mine spoils. Um, and so the trees that you can get established or that naturally establish in this case, they, f- they form a focus for all other plants to to come into. So they, they especially if it's birch, we, you know, the First Nations of of the interior British Columbia, the Shepwemak, they called those the mother trees long before I called, you know, discovered or made uh, note of mother trees. But um, they, those birch trees, they're incredible because they, they're so highly photosynthetic that they, they provide huge energy for the soil. And so their root systems grow large and they're able to, to access water deep down, and and also because they they're highly nutritious, they're full of nitrogen. Um, they actually have these bacteria that grow on their roots that are associative nitrogen fixers, um, and so they're just really really rich. And so other trees will establish around them. They're like a mother tree, a nucleus. And the oak trees they actually can share mycorrhizal fungi and common and be linked together. I mean, I haven't studied that specific forest, but I know that they share ectomycorrhizas. And so my guess is that, you know, that the birch has created this nice uh, fertile ground. Um, It's improved the soil in this sheep area. It's got inoculum or fungal inoculum that that these oaks then, when they germinate, are able to tap into that network of the birch trees and it helps them along. And the same thing with the aspen and the birch, or the aspen and the, yeah, the aspen and the birch, they also will share mycorrhizas in common and birches also, you know, as I said, provide this um, you know, this very I don't know, they build the soil, they're soil engineers. And so that allows the more you know, the later trees, the ones that are a little bit more, need a little bit more to get going, it allows them to come in. And then that focus will grow and grow and grow. And eventually, it'll take over the whole area. Suzanne Samard is with us. She's a forest ecologist at the University of British Columbia. And as we started out saying, a forest detective. And she has been deeply influential in understanding the science of how plants and trees communicate. We got a call from Breda. And this is something that I wanted to to pick up on. She says, I love the conversation. Indigenous people have known that trees and plants communicate with each other before it was recognized by the scientific community. So just a nod to indigenous wisdom. You you learned from Native American beliefs in, in this connection 
within the forest. And I, I think I sense from your writing that it seemed very scientifically logical to you, even as you were developing the science. Is that right? Yeah, you know, I, I started working with some Indigenous people about a decade ago, and I learned, you know, it, it was it's just really opened up my whole research program <laughs> and how I how I see forests, which has always been a connected place. But I, I was struggling for so long with the forest industry and fighting, you know, trying to get them to change and to understand what were they doing, what was it going on in these forests, and I realized. You know, yeah, the forest is a connected place, but what we're doing is we're disconnecting it, right, through our practices. We're clear-cutting, we're taking out the big old trees, we're taking out, you know, the the, the legacies of the forest and starting anew. And, and it just, um, and it was disconnecting the past from the future, disconnecting species, and, it, and these forests weren't meant to be like that. And so when I started working with uh, Teresa, Dr. Teresa Ryan, with with uh, a number of Indigenous people, and they explained to me, you know, our worldview is that we're all connected, that the world works that way. It is all about how we're related to each other. You know, the trees are our relations, the wolves, the bears. We treat them with respect. You know that, and that every every one of them counts, and they, you know, and they do. And so I thought this this is what we are missing. In our forestry practices, is we we've lost our way, right? We we've forgotten that that you know we're part of the world, and also everything is about their relationships. Just like our societies are all about our relationships, and if you take away the neighbors, if you take away the bakers and the and the the, the bankers and the teachers and the nurses, and all you have left is the businessman, for example, right. well, it's not a very productive, rich society, and it's the same thing in forests. They they're diverse. Um, and so, yes, so the indigenous writings that, that, that I came across, the speaking with people, I mean, I came across writings that by Bruce Miller, uh, his, his uh, Snohomish name is, is Subie. He has since passed, but he wrote about the fungal networks that, that heal the forest, that grow through the forest floor and connect. He called them the tree people, you know, his relations. And, um, and I thought, wow, you know, they've known about the, the coast nations, as well as, I'm sure, all the nations around the world, the Aboriginal people have known about this incredible vastness below ground and these fungal networks that keep the tree, that that work with the trees to keep the forest diverse. And I stumbled on it through my frustrations, my my endeavors, my scientific (laughs) detective stories, you know, doing Western science using isotopes and DNA analysis and, you know, all the tools at hand to to discover that these networks exist. And then, um, you know, not even knowing that, that I'm, what I'm doing is just basically rediscovering what was always known. But the interesting thing here is that the Aboriginal knowledge was basically ignored and, and considered to be, you know, airy-fairy or yeah. it's not real or it's mysterious. Whereas when, when I, you know, when the science is done using Western science tool, it's like, man, this is amazing and cool. But <laughs> You know what? That that's not meant to be so much a criticism of Western science. It is an amazing 
and you know it's an amazing tool. It's beautiful. It, it works so well. It's just that it's not that different than Aboriginal science. Aboriginal science is just as sophisticated, and the information, the knowledge is e- even more vast than we've uncovered. Um, and so I think that you know moving forward, you know working together to, to is the way to go, right, is to use the power of all of the tools of observation, of testing, of experimentation, of changing and adapting um, into our world that is changing so quickly. We really do need to work together. Call from Deborah in Plymouth, Minnesota. Hi, Deborah. I know it's been a while and I appreciate you waiting. No, thank you for taking my call. Um, Dr. Smart, I, um, I have heard several interviews of this subject and I find it very fascinating and I look forward to reading your book. My question is, um, you've chosen memoir to tell your story, a very scientifically based story. Um, but I am most interested in your personal growth and our um, strong experiences in the forest community, how they um, they inform us of our our own growth and development. And you talk about how the forest has um, helped you raise your daughters and, and heal um, after um, um, breast cancer. So if you could talk um, about why and how um, trees have helped you tell your, your story of growth and development. Yeah, well, you know, I, I was so fortunate to, to grow up in the woods and, and you know, it, it is a place of home for me. I, I go into the woods every day. Um, and I, I get, I'm peace in peace there. And, um, and I, it's instant healing. I can feel it in my body. Um, I relax. Um, I enjoy the trees. I talk to them. I say, hi, hi guys. Um, and by the time I'm finished my walk, my, you know, whatever I'm doing, I just feel so renewed. And, um, and I think probably most people can relate to that. You just get this high. Um, and, you know, it, it's about us and our relationship with forests. And if you have a good one, you're gonna you're gonna enjoy it. But it's also about you, you know we can also talk about the chemistry of all that. You know, there's we have these biochemical responses, physiological responses of you know of stress or dec- or peace, and and it's manifested in in our whole physiological response. The same thing in trees and plants, and you know they have physiological stress responses too, and and they're changing all the time, just as we are. You know, and some of that change um, is manifest in 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 the compounds that they emit through the air. Right? We call them volatile organic compounds, or just those aromas that you smell, like the the pollen, the flower cones, the you know the bark, you know the ponderosa pines in my neck of the foot. When it's when it's a really warm day, it smells like vanilla. Um, in in the soil after a rain, just that smell of of freshness. That that is actually bacteria. <laughs> In the soil, these gram-positive bacteria that are kind of imbibed and popping, and we can smell basically the, the the turnover of those bacteria, but it makes us high. It makes us feel wonderful. And so there is a really true biochemical response in the trees, in the soil, in us, and it's all linked together. And, not, and you know, I just, uh, I, now as a scientist, I understand that, but as a 
before I knew any of that, of course, I just went and enjoyed the forest like everybody else. And, um, and it is really, truly a place of healing for me. And in the forest, of course, when I was going through breast cancer, um, the forest I live in actually are the homes to, to Pacific U. And Pacific U produces a medicine. It's, it's actually a defense compound to defend itself against infections. Um, but it's also, um, def- it, we, we use it, and the Aboriginal people did for a long, long, long time, and that's how Western science got to know about it, um, and then developed it into paclitaxel, which is an anti-cancer drug, which I actually took to heal my breast cancer. And so I would go to the forest as often as I could and just hang out with those yew trees and thank them and wrap my arms around them. <laughs> Susanna, I have a feeling that you've released your share of stress chemicals in those encounters with grizzly bears. I- I'm telling you, the <laughs> even your descriptions in the book were hard to read. I'm not kidding. I mean, uh, one of those encounters, it sounds like you weren't so sure you were going to get out of it alive. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, You know what? Being a, a researcher in the woods of Western Canada or I'm sure in Alaska as well, or Yukon, you know, there are grizzly bears, there's cougars, there's a lots of dangers, there's heat stroke, there's so many things that can but that the you grizzlies, have to be aware of. Suzanne, I mean. Yes, the grizzlies. Yes, what, what, so I ended up... Yeah, tell yeah. us. Well, I was, I, this was actually, you know, this wasn't, I wasn't working, but I had many encounters during work, but this particular chapter that I write about, it's called Treed, and um, my friend Jean and I were hiking up into the Stein Valley, which is, is a, a beautiful valley near Vancouver, old growth forest, and we were climbing higher and higher, and it was my birthday, I was 22, turning 22, and I, we wanted to get to the Alpine um, but along the way, we started encountering all this grizzly sign. So, like, big claw marks on the trees and big poops on this trail and then <laughs> dug up plants. And they were they were obviously there. I mean, we didn't see them, see them but we, we were there. So we decided to turn back. Um, and the next day, we were leaving the forest, and we got almost all the way down. And all of a sudden, I was behind Jean and she stopped dead in her tracks. I smashed into her, you know, at the back and I'm going, what's going on? And it's like, oh, there was a grizzly mama. And she was only like five feet away from from us. Um, and she had two cubs. And Jean is going, there's a grizzly. And I'm like, oh, no. And the mama bear started snorting at us. And, and Jean says, well, I'm going up a tree. So she dropped her pack and she started climbing this Douglas fir tree. It had lots of branches. And I, I said, okay, I'm going to go too. And I started climbing another tree. Um, and meanwhile, Mama Bear had sent her cubs up this huge ponderosa pines, and they were happily sitting up in the crowns. She was sort of like wandering around the base of all the trees, snorting, and she was mad. <laughs> um, and I'm climbing higher and higher, and Jean is going higher and higher and higher. And I realized that my tree was much shorter than hers. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I was like... My tree by then was bending back and forth, and I was like almost getting close to the mouth of the grizzly, and I'm like, oh my God, God, this is crazy. (laughs) Anyway, we we were up there for an hour, um, and eventually Mama Bear got her cubs out of the tree, and, um, and we... We were fine. Oh. You know, we climbed down. Um, we were afraid. Of course, we ran out of the bushes as fast as we could with our pots and pans banging and shouting at Grizz to stay away from us. And she did. I, you know, it was almost like the mama Grizzly took charge of the situation. And she says, OK, I've got three kids here or four kids here. I need, I need to take charge in this. <laughs> uh, I don't know, Suzanne. I mean, it could have all ended at 22. You are a lucky 
lucky young yeah. woman then, and uh, I'm sure it informed the way you traverse yeah, the forest. Yeah, in years to come. I, I think I have time here to grab a call from Leah in Rochester. Hi, Leah. Thanks so much for waiting. Hi, thank you so much for the chance to ask this question. Sure. Um, I am in Rochester, and I'm part of a group that is working to save a great blue heron colony. It's the only colony in the state that's in mature upland hardwood forest, um, and a development plan that goes right through it. Um, state ecologists have told us it's, the forest itself is probably um, 70 to 90 years old, and it's part of what's very little contiguous forest left in Olmsted. And I, we've had a groundswell of support locally and grassroots support, but how do you, do you have advice for convincing local leadership that things like this are worth saving, like for the whole community, not just a few homes for wealthy right. people? Suzanne, what do you, th- what, what's your advice on that? Uh, it's so tough. You know, um, you know, I, I think just push, 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 and don't stop till you get what you want. Uh, and so, I mean, we're doing that in Western Canada. It's just turned into this, you know, massive protest. And, you know, I hope it doesn't get to that point for you. Like, I think if, you know, get on the media, get on the radio, get, um, talk to your friends, word of mouth, um, make a big stink about it, you know, until they're embarrassed. And um, talk about the vitality, the importance of the forest, um, how what it means to the people and get people out to... To, to show their voices. You know, in Western Canada, we're fighting for our last 3% of old growth forests at Ferry, Ferry Creek. There are thousands of, or thousands of people up there anyway. Some of the kids are chained to trees. Some of them are way up in the trees. I mean, this is serious stuff, right? Because these forests are our life support systems, right? We can't, we're not going to exist without forests. They're, they, they provide 80% of our clean water, their homes to 80% of our biodiversity. Um, they store 80% of our carbon. You know, this, this is, they're essential and, and we're not treating them that way. And I think build your case, right? And if it comes to, you know, blockading them at the end, then so be it. But um, it's really super important that people stand up for their forests because we need them. Uh, so I've been getting some photos here from listeners who are aware of what's happening up at, at Ferry Creek. And I have a tweet here that says, this should be illegal. I saw stumps of thousand-year-old trees at Ferry Creek flagging tape on 2,000-year-old yellow cedars. It's like destroying the Pantheon or the Sistine Chapel to make a buck. Is that how old those trees are, Suzanne? That yeah. is... It, oh my gosh! Yeah. It's yes, remarkable. Yeah, it's remarkable. They're those old cedars are two can be two thousand years old. So yeah, and it's a tragedy. You know, it, they they cut them down, and the mills don't even really like them because they're too big to mill. Um, and and so it, it's almost become like, you know, it, it's a war in the woods. It's people have dug in their heels. Um, but these trees are worth a gazillion, you know, they're worth way more standing than they are being milled into two by fours that are sold for almost nothing. And, and then the, you know, the, the, there's, there's very little of the, of the benefit that accrues back to the people. These end up in the pockets of the, of the corporations that do the logging and a little bit comes into the government coffers. But my goodness, the whole world depends on these old growth forests standing. We depend on the West Coast forests because they are hotspots for carbon storage, hotspots for biodiversity. They're extremely valuable. 
and really the government has no business, uh, as far as I'm concerned, from the people's perspective, from the planet's perspective, they have no business um, cutting down these trees for a little short-term profit. Um, and it's right that this is on the world stage, and I hope more and more people hear about it and, and send a message and say this we depend, you know, the whole world depends on us looking after these forests, just like we, we depend on Brazil to look after the Amazon. We depend on, uh, you know, Russia and Canada to look after the boreal forests because they're also absolutely essential to our, our, our well-being. Um, it's not always the case. And I would say we need to bring these governments to task. Right. Susanna, I have to say, as we close here, uh, I hope when Hollywood is done making a movie of your life, that they will make a movie about your grandmother, Winifred Beatrice Ferguson. Oh, my gosh. She sounds like an exceptional woman. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much. That was really fun to talk. Suzanne Samard's book is called Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. There is unrest in the forest. There is trouble with the trees. For the maples want sunlight and the oaks ignore their bleeds. just heard a recording of a live radio show from NPR News. You can add your voice to the discussion by calling in at 800-242-2828 or tweeting us at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I, NPR. To hear more conversations like this, subscribe to our podcast. And thanks!